Good morning, Seven Mile Road. You bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you this day, and God, we need you. Without you, this would just be one more kind of cadence, one more iteration of doing what we're used to. This would just be four walls with people that file in and out who have words come in through one ear and right out the other. And so, Holy Spirit, we're asking that you would come to not only teach us, but to convict us. And thank you, that's what you promised to, to do. And so we're asking that you would be our help this day. Reveal to us, illumine to us the person, the character of Jesus. Allow him to become so beautiful in our eyes, so wondrous in our sight that it changes us from within. And so please, God, we're asking that you would allow this to not just be any normal day, but it would be just one more opportunity for us to behold our God and our King and to be just transformed radically by that. So God, we need you. We want you. Please come and be near. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, roughly 10 years ago, uh, I got to go snowboarding with some friends. It was a rhythm of ours to every year while the season allowed, get to the slopes, snowboard. So this is a picture of my best, one of my best friends, Joseph, and he looks really cool snowboarding, I know. Uh, he had been snowboarding a lot of years before I ever picked one up, and he was my guide. He, he assured me, just do what I do. I got you. Follow me. We're going to do this thing together. And so year after year, we do this. And in 2013, 2014, roughly, we went to Breckenridge, and it was incredible. Like a wave of fresh snow. It was majestic. And I'll never forget, we were finally, I was finally kind of getting the ropes of it. And and we were up on this lift, we're going down this black mountain, and uh, like black diamond or whatever those things are called, and, and we were kind of teetering on the lift, which is a terrifying experience. And my friend Joseph looked down and he said, that right there, that's what we're going to go do. And I said, my teeth are chattering, I'm not going to look, I'm about to fall off, just well, you can talk about it later when we're off the lift. If you know anything about snowboarding, the lift in and of itself is kind of a terrifying experience. You're like one of your feet are unstrapped from the contraption you're strapped to, you hug your foot to the binding, and you're supposed to just go as far as you humanly can. Otherwise, somebody on skis will kill you. And so you go, and I thought we had agreed, we're going to powwow this thing on the side to discern exactly what path we're going down. He was so excited to go down this like uncharted path between some trees, like nobody's going down this way. And he was just off, as professional snowboarders do. You just go, and as you're going, like click your foot, strap, and, you're go and I thought, I'm sitting on my butt thinking, I thought we were going to talk about this. So in a hurry, I'm scrambling, racing down to catch him, and I see him going down like very off the beaten path, and he just looks back and yells at the top of his lungs, this way, follow me. And then I see like a gaggle of humans go the complete other direction where everybody's supposed to go, and I'm going to be very honest with you, I didn't follow my friend. <laughs> Like that, oh, I'm not as confident just yet. I'm just going to go where all the other humans are going. It was a terrible mistake. Uh, we got to see like the GoPro footage later on in the cabin of all that he saw in that little venture. It was like tucked between all these beautiful trees, untouched snow, little divots where he could like do fake jumps. And we got to think about that and talk about what it would have been like if I was with him. And, and I got to go down like a sea of moguls which, if you know anything about moguls, 
Moguls are to snowboarders as to what snowboarders are to skiers. Like, why do you exist? Who allowed you on this mountain? It's that sort of sentiment that a snowboarder has towards moguls, and so I'm tired and I'm weary, and my friend's talking up this incredible experience that I was supposed to come with him on. And uh, our, our time together this morning in this passage is a lot like that, in the sense that we just kind of began this series called Revolution. Understanding the fact that Jesus did a lot more than just flip tables in the temple, he has revolutionized so many arenas and areas of our lives, which we can easily assume are untouched by this Jesus. And what we're going to come to find today, per the passage that was just read for us, is that Jesus is going to revolutionize our social norms. And I just want us to understand that in the context of this passage, just in the verses right before, Jesus has already begun to do that. He, he's a rabbi, he's this influential teacher, people are clamoring just to be around Jesus at this point, he's healed some folks. And instead of like all the other rabbis picking the most wealthy or prominent or influential disciples to, to be his pupils, he looks at a couple of poor fishermen who are also terrible at their job, it seems, like they, they caught zero fish. They were fishing all night, caught zero. Their performance reviews are terrible. And Jesus says, yeah, you, follow me. And that's going to be the invitation for us this morning. Jesus is going to reveal to us some relational principles that he lives into that defies all of our social norms. And he's going to look you right in the face and ask you, will you follow me? It's an unbeaten path. It's a road less traveled. Everybody else is going that way. But will you follow me? That's going to be the question we get to continue to ask ourselves. So let's dive in. You with me? Here we go. Luke 5, verse 12, it reads this. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. I just want to pause here because relational principle number one of Jesus is he believes in the power of touch. He believes in the power of touch. So here is a man, and it says that he is full of leprosy. That word for full in the original language is a word that means covered over from head to toe, completely consumed by. It's often translated into overwhelmed. This skin disease has overwhelmed this man. It's likely the fact that he's not just, you know, got a couple of patches here and there. It's, he is covered from head to toe with skin disease. And it's probably affected him for years and years. It's overwhelmed the system physically, socially, relationally. He's a different person because of this disease. And just to give us some cultural context as to what it means to be a leper in this day and age, especially per the laws of God, if you have leprosy, you're ceremonially unclean. You have to leave your house. You have to live outside the protection of the walls of the city, out there. You have to cover your face, kind of like a, an ancient mask, just in case you might infect some people. And whenever you draw close to people with your disheveled hair and your messy and dirty clothes to signify that you are unclean through and through, if anybody undiseased or without skin disease or leprosy would be around you, you would have to yell the words, unclean, unclean. And so talk about an experience of utter shame all the time. 
That's what this man has been overwhelmed by because of his disease. And yet and still, what do we see from this man? We see such a purity of trust in Jesus, right? Did you catch it? He is unwelcomed everywhere. Jesus is surrounded by people, and from some relationally appropriate distance, he falls down onto his face, and he cries out to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. And to better understand exactly what Jesus is saying, let's just flip the words will and can, because that's what the man is saying. He is telling Jesus, I know you can. I know you can, but will you? Will you make me clean? Because I know that you can. He is expressing and affirming to Jesus, I know that you are strong enough. I know that you have the authority. I know that you are miraculous in all of your ways. I know that to be true. I know you can. But the question is, I'm also, I'm also asking, but, but will you? He is affirming Jesus' volition, affirming that he doesn't get to dictate exactly when and how Jesus moves and operates. It's this purity of trust that is so lacking in my prayers to Jesus. Because I am very demanding when I believe God is strong enough. Like, God, I know you can do it. Right now it would be perfect. Like, now, for this person, for me, it it would be sweet and really glorifying to you, God, if it happened this way. Like, I am trying to manipulate God, but the purity of trust of this man, overwhelmed by his disease, is I know you can. But will you? I think there's so much to learn in in the disposition of even trust of this leper. But what I want us to focus in on is is Jesus' response. The power of touch is this first relational principle that Jesus exemplifies. Because he he didn't just say... Sure, my guy, come on, right here. What did Jesus do? He stretched out his hand. He could have easily said, sure, my, sure, my leper friend, like come, come right here, and I'm not going to touch you, but I'm just going to speak the words like I've done before. You're healed. Because this, this whole situation is making me a little uncomfortable. Like you're, you're really dirty. You're really messy. It would make me, a ceremonially clean teacher, become unclean if I touched you. But what does Jesus do instead? Stretches out his hand, and it says, touched him. Now, that word for touched in the original language is not just a simple grazing. It's not like you're like awkward side hug. It's a word that means to meaningfully impact someone by attaching yourself to them. It is a, it is a word packed with meaning about this is who I'm associated with. You and me together for all these people to see. I'm with you. You're with me. Now, if, if that's all that Jesus did, if that's all that Jesus had done for this man overwhelmed by his leprosy, I think that would have healed a lot of things internally for this man. Am I right? Like he, he hasn't been touched in years, potentially. He hasn't been associated with someone, especially someone of importance, of prominence. No one is willing to go near this man. Six feet away is the, the regulated distance. But Jesus has so deeply moved this man by touching him personally and saying, no, no, you're with me. And then he heals him. See, what this, what this sort of physical touch reminds me of is, uh, I, I didn't recognize the significance of this until my wife and I had a, had a child. But a couple of years ago when our son Elijah was born, right, like he, he's delivered, he gets caught, he gets rushed to be wiped down, like he gets the cute little pink beanie thing, and then he, he's rushed over to mom because it's important, of, like skin to skin, we've got to hurry up because something, something happens relationally, 
between a mom and a child when skin-to-skin happens as quickly as possible. Now, I originally had a picture that I was going to show you on the screen of that moment, and then I asked my wife about that last night. And then she smiled at me with a half smile of like, no words need to be spoken, but you sure that was a good idea? So this is a different image instead. Uh, (laughs) This is the effects of skin to skin, like no safer place in the world for my son than mama's arms. Um, Wiser heads prevailed in the use of this illustration. And where was I? Uh, The power of touch. And in so many ways, what what scientifically we've understood is that when you physically are embraced or meaningfully interacted with with touch, it, it provides something in your brain that makes you feel both relaxed and relating to somebody deeply. That, that especially after we've experienced COVID, all this research was done of the power of touch and the ways that it actually inspires both affection and a sense of protection. Like, you're safe here, and I'm with you. And that's exactly what my boy gets to experience every time he gets to be in mom, snuggled up into mama's arms. And that is, in so many ways, what Jesus is trying to exemplify for us. There is power in touch, and yet what we, day by day, live into is a very different sort of power that we chase after, and that is the power of connections. You see, what you and I and what society has deemed is actually most advantageous is, well, who do you know? Who can write you a great recommendation? Who can help you climb the rungs of that corporate ladder? Who can you like say you are friends with? Who can be a LinkedIn connection or an Instagram follower? Who who can you be connected to to elevate yourself for all of your personal aspirations? We all want to be elevated and who you associate with, there's power in who you're connected to. And Jesus is saying "There's there's a path less traveled where everybody's going to go that way. And I'm asking you to come this way and follow me. Will you believe instead in the power of touch, not to those who are mighty and influential and powerful, who can all of a sudden elevate you to the places you aspire to get to, but I'm talking about touching those in desperate need that you can uplift. It will give you eyes for a a very different group of people, depending on which power you believe in, which power you live into. And what Jesus is beckoning us, all of us to, is I know it's a little scary. I know it's not prescribed from everything you learned in college and from your your parents and from your friends. But what I'm telling you is, trust me, this way. Follow me. And so with the best of our energy, with the most of our time, with the way that we think about people, not as pawns to be exploited for our personal gain, but as real people to tend to, to provide affection for and protection for, Can we be a people who believe in that sort of power instead? The next relational principle. Look with me in the text at verse 14. Verse 14, it reads this, And he, Jesus, charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. I just want to pause here and I want us to recognize that relational principle number two is that Jesus is commending to this man that he has just healed to prioritize 
communal belonging. To prioritize communal belonging. But I want us to recognize before we kind of dive into that is the difficulty of Jesus' command here. This is a really difficult command. And if we just read quickly through this passage, we miss that altogether because we're just trying to get to the good part where, you know, it's, it's all good and this person is restored. And if we don't pay attention to this verse, we'll miss it. Because what he has just commanded this man who has been detached from his loved ones, from people he, he holds dear, from his own home, and, in, and all of his disheveled mess, he's essentially said, don't go to your family first. Don't go to your friends. Don't even go to your home. You're going to go to the temple. And at the temple, you're going to go to the very person who deemed you unclean maybe years and years ago. The very person who kind of orchestrated the series of events to lead you here, you're going to go back and be reconciled with that person. You're going to receive blessing from that person. They're going to offer a sacrifice on your behalf. And instead of showering first, changing your clothes that you've been in a mess in for a long, long time, before you look nice and pretty and polished, before you're your best version of yourself, go be restored communally. The religious setting is not unsafe for you because you haven't buttoned it all up just yet. And this is highlighting for us the purpose of Moses' command. You see, the difficulty of Jesus' command is revealing to us the purpose of God's law, of his command to his people. When people ask Jesus, what is the fulfillment of the law? What's it all about? What does Jesus say? Ten commandments, 500 plus laws. What does it all culminate into? What does he say? Right relationship with God and right relationship with others. To love the Lord your God with all your being and to love others as yourself. That's the law. And they're inextricably linked. To be able to interact with God rightly, you must interact with each other rightly. That's the law. And what Jesus is saying is, I know it's difficult to want to go here first. I know it's difficult to want to go to the religious setting first, where other people will be around to say, like, aren't you the leper? Isn't that your past? But to go there first, what would have happened, per Moses' command in the Old Testament is, they would have taken two birds. From Leviticus 13 and 14, they would have looked at this man, deemed him clean based on everything that Jesus had just done, and they would have taken two birds, they would have taken a, a piece of cedar wood, they would have taken a, a yarn of scarlet and some hyssop, which is just an herb to signify and symbolize purification. They would have taken two birds, killed one, and the blood of one would be put into a bowl, and the other bird with all the other elements attached to it would be dipped into the blood to let, to let fly and be free. Seems a little pertinent. Like this, this symbol has to be done communally. We've all got to see it. It's proof. It's evidence. But what is it evidence of for them plural, for everybody around bearing witness to what just took place. It's this. When God does a work in somebody, we all get to take part immediately. We all get to swoop in the religious setting, a Sunday gathering, and a house church meeting. You don't have to be polished to attend. You don't have to arrive and ascend somewhere to finally belong. No, no. We all get to take part in you figuring that out with you. And it's proof to us evidence to us that the law really is about loving God and loving each other, and they're inextricably linked. Friends, you don't have to arrive before you arrive, before you participate in God's community, in the people of God. 
You don't have to go a certain number of weeks without failing in lust or failing with drinking too much on Saturday nights. You, you, don't, you don't have to arrive for your marriage to finally not be so rocky. You don't have to arrive that you're finally feeling like above water in your job or parenting or the way you use your money. You're, you don't have to be buttoned up to finally just the community of God, be the community of God. You can belong now. And it reminds you so much of what happens in John chapter 11 when Jesus actually raises somebody from the dead. You see, leprosy was a, a death sentence in many ways. Back then, you know, 99% of people un- deemed unclean from leprosy just were assumed dead to everybody. They didn't have the medical advances we have now. But in John chapter 11, when Jesus raises somebody from the actual dead, the man's been dead, Lazarus, for several days. There's a stench. He's been decaying for some time. He doesn't go home to take a bath first. But what does Jesus command the rest of the community to do? He looks at everybody else who's just been grieving over this man that they've loved, that was once dead, and is now alive because of Jesus calling him out by name. And what does the community task to do? You get to go shed the grave clothes off. You get to be a part of removing the decay of what once was. What death once marked as mine, life now does instead. And guess what, people of God? He belongs with you. You take the grave clothes off. And that's what we get to do together. And it's proof that the gospel is actually the gospel. That it's good news for broken, sinful people like you and me. You don't have to figure it out first. This room should never be a bunch of people who are nice and tidy. This should be a hospital for people in need. Same with our house churches. And so the invitation of Jesus down the path that is less traversed is... Stop prioritizing your self-improvement and instead prioritize communal belonging. Let the priorities and the ordering of those things be rightly placed because it's inextricably linked that your right relationship with God is conjoined to your right relationship with others around you. And the question is, will you follow Jesus even when it's messy, when you are the cause of the mess? Will you trust him enough to follow him down that path right there? Because that's the invitation this morning. Let's keep, let's keep going forward and pressing into the passage to find the third relational principle that defies all of our social norms. Look at the text in verse 15 of Luke 5. It reads this. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him, and to be healed of their infirmities. Verse 16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. The final and third relational principle of Jesus that defies and upends all of our social norms is this. He takes on a posture of submission instead of a posture of importance. Jesus takes on a posture of submission even when the posture of importance would have been well-advised. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus is ascending in popularity. He's at the peak of his kind of influential powers. He's healed folks. He's spoken with great authority. Crowds are swelling, just longing to be around Jesus. And what every other campaigner, what every other like strategic thinker, consultant would have said to Jesus in this time, what you would have said, because you want Jesus' potential to be met with his actions, you would tell him, now's the time. 
private jet. We're going to go here to there. We're going to mic you up at all times. We're going to be at that late night show and this thing. We're going to do the thing. And I'm going to be with you and we're going to, no time for sleeping, no time for resting. We got to go, go, go because now is the time people are feeling this. And what does Jesus do instead of doing what we would even advise Jesus to do in a moment such like this? He withdraws. He withdraws. To understand exactly what Jesus is prioritizing and what he is doing, uh, the word for withdraw is a two-part word in the original language. And at the crux of the word, of the, of, the, of the meaning of it, the first word is one that means to make room, to create space. The second word is one that means to get beneath, to go under. So exactly what is Jesus doing when he withdraws? In the sea of all that is, everybody vying for his attention, wanting just to be around Jesus, like we're here, we're in, whatever you've got, Jesus is trying to create some space from all of it to make room for him and just him and his father to get beneath the surface, to go subterranean, to say, what's happening at a heart level now? I need to get alone with my father. That was the position he took. That was the posture he chose when everyone else would say, don't do that right now. There's no time for that. There's so many things to do, Jesus, so many people to see, so many places to go. What's helpful, too, is that he withdraws to a desolate place to do what? To pray. To pray is another two-part word with, with lots of helpful meaning. With one part, it's, it's kind of natural to think it's, it's to make your needs known. It's to express your desire or your want. But the other word is, is a word that means to be in motion. It's a word that denotes movement. You are moving towards something or someone as you make your request known. So what is Jesus doing precisely? At the height of his popularity, at the peak of his influence, he's hiding away, posturing himself down low, just like the leper did. The leper fell forward toward Jesus' feet, right? He fell down, motioned himself toward Jesus, moved him toward the one that could actually be his help and be his rescue in time of need, and he made his needs known to his father. That was the posture of Jesus when the world was saying, we got to go. There's too many things to do. It reminds me a lot of kind of like this, this fable of a story. It, it almost seems too amazing to be true. Uh, but Su Susanna Wesley was the mother of 10 kids. And you may have known the, the name John Wesley or Charles Wesley. They're two very influential leaders in the life of the church and the history of, of the church. And Susanna Wesley was a mother of 10. Her, her husband was the pastor at a local church. And from everything we, we read and know, he wasn't that great of a pastor and probably wasn't that great of a dad or a husband. Like he, she did everything. She led Bible studies for women on the side. She took care of 10 kids mainly by herself. She ran so much of the household. And you know what she would do for two hours every single day? She would do this. It was apron time. She would, in the, in the middle of the floor, put, put an apron over herself with 10 kids running around. You know what the 10 kids would know what happened? Well, you know what they would say when they would see their mom in this position? They would say, shh, shh, shh. mom's doing the thing. Apron time. Because they knew for two hours every single day, if she was going to do the next 16, 17 hours well, she needed to spend two hours low to the ground, motioning herself toward her heavenly father to plead to him, to make the request known to him. I will do the next 17 hours terribly if this doesn't happen for me right now, if you don't help me. And that feels so foreign to us. Am I right? When you have a long list of to-dos, 
when you've got even one kid with all their demands, when you've got just one job or one... We can't even make room for, for God for five minutes in this posture. And here's a woman for two hours every day would say, I can't do any of it right if I don't come here. And that is the model that Jesus is trying to embody for us. If I know you think you're really important and needed. I know you think it's got to be you. To say the right thing, to do the task, I know you think it's got to be you right now. It's urgent. It's pressing. And what Jesus is trying to exemplify for us as a relational principle is you will do none of it well if you don't run to him like this, if you don't position yourself like this daily, regularly. And that goes against all of our social norms. What I love about Jesus is that he maintains this posture. He runs to this position to the very end. If you were to fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane, we'd come to find Jesus. And what does Jesus do at the Garden of Gethsemane? He makes a plea, motioning himself down, falling to his feet in such agony and pain because he recognizes the troops are coming in just minutes. His friend Judas that he had invested in for years is about to come and betray him with the kiss. And with all that is about to transpire, Jesus falls to his feet or falls to his knees toward his father. And what does he ask God? What does he ask him? If you will, let this cup pass from me. If you will, because I know that you can. I know you've got the strength. I know you've got the angel army to just wipe it all out. I know we could think of maybe something different. And Jesus was wholly submitted to his father. But in that space, he was asking him, Father, I know you can, but will you? And what did Jesus receive? What did Jesus get in that moment? Unlike the leper, Jesus didn't get an I will. Jesus didn't get a personal touch. Jesus didn't get belonging to some community in that moment. What did Jesus get instead? He was betrayed by the ones he called friends. He was mocked and killed by the very ones he came to save. He was physically tormented, crucified up on a Roman tree. He was relationally torn apart from his heavenly father. Why? Why did he choose that path? It was so that you and I might have an opportunity for right relationship with his father forevermore. He didn't get the personal touch. He didn't get to belong in community. He didn't get any of it. In his plea to his father, if you will, let this cup pass from me, he didn't get any of that so that you and I might have right relationship with God forevermore. Now, if that person, if that Jesus is someone that, that you can't trust to go down the road less traveled, God, friends, the invitation this morning is this. He has proven by his track record to love you to death and back, to raise from the grave so that you might experience life eternal with him and his father forevermore. Will you trust him enough to follow him? I've mentioned from this stage before that uh, my mom, who is the most faithful person I know, 
She would pray every day before I ever became a pastor, before I ever even became a believer. She prayed every day that I would be a yes man to Jesus. A very simple yet consistent and persistent prayer. She prayed on her knees at five in the morning every day that I would be a yes man to Jesus. And, and her desire was that I would say yes the moment that Jesus called me by name. Her desire was that I would say yes if he called me over here or over there, down the less beaten path, whatever it may be, to put my yes on the table first to whatever Jesus would have for me. And Seven Mile Road, that has been my prayer for you this week in preparing that you would be men and women who have the yes already on the table. Unlike me, down that slope of, uh, like, a lot of people are going that way, though. That you and I would be the sorts of men and women who already have the yes on the table. So when Jesus looks back and says, this way, follow me, we'd already say yes. Because we trust him that implicitly. So Seven Mile Road, that's the invitation this morning. Jesus is really trustworthy. He has proven it so. Let's be a people who follow him. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you this day. We thank you specifically for Jesus. We don't deserve him. If there was ever a relationship between clean and unclean, if there was ever a relationship that just justified separation, it was between us and you, God. And because of Jesus, we have a very different reality we get to step into. We have a different song to sing. God, help our hearts come alive to the fact that Jesus paid such a sacrifice, gladly and willingly, that we might have right relationship with you. So God, allow that truth to shake up everything about us, to affect us so deeply that when we follow you and how you revolutionize what happens interpersonally, God, that we'd be so quick to submit to you and chase after you that everyone we interact with at work, at home, in our neighborhood, all around us, God, that our, our social footprint would just be so radically different because of you, Jesus, because you've beckoned us and invited us to something different, something better. So please, God, Answer the prayer that we started off with this day. Don't just teach us, convict us. And don't just convict us, God, transform us. We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.